I'm Jay Parsons. You're listening to The Curious Wire. So I'm really excited about this episode and to have you as a guest, Jay. But before we dive into this, can you tell us who, like, what's your title? What do you do? And how do you have such viral posts on LinkedIn? <laughs> um, well, I'm uh, the chief economist, head of industry principles at RealPage. And so um, a lot of what I get to do is, as many people know, RealPage is predominantly a software company servicing rental housing. And, uh, and my team has the benefit of being able to look at a lot of the aggregate data that flows through property management systems. So, you know, not just the asking rents, which obviously historically have gotten a lot of attention, being able to look at you know, things that I think are more interesting, things like, uh, you know, retention rates and, and rent roll movement and uh, how long units sit vacant between leases. And so um, so it's, it's, it gives us a lot of uh, us data nerds, a lot of material to work with. And how long have you been doing that? How long have you been in the multifamily space? I joined by accident in uh, 2009, right at the beginning of, uh, right in the middle of the uh, last big re- uh, pa- uh, recession, almost called it a pandemic, get it mixed up, but no recession, the great financial crisis, and uh, really just needed a job at the time, I was going back to school, had no intent of staying around very long. But, um, you know, the industry was was fascinating, it was growing, and um, and, you know, I really you know, developed a deep love and passion for, um, for rental housing and for the, and particularly, I think a lot of the, you know, I, I like to help people. I think rental housing is very misunderstood. And so it's a very good opportunity to, you know, do some myth busting and, and, and correcting conventional wisdoms that aren't really backed by data. And it makes a lot of fun. Yeah. So a, a story, I don't really watch movies, but the book has become a big movie is the, the big short. And that story where you have, and you just talked about the financial crisis where basically it, it happened for on these subprime uh, mortgage bonds where people were basically approving things and doing things that shouldn't have been done. And there was all a, a few, a small group of people saw these red flags and saw things were, were not being done correctly. And they made a, a, a bet on this and they made a killing. Unfortunately, that happened at the expense of a lot of people defaulting on their loans. And a lot of, I'm not saying what's happening now reminds me of that, but the idea of looking, I think in general, the economy continues to operate similarly than it did back then. And even multifamily, there's a lot of like, this is how it's always been done. And some things just don't make sense that, like you say, there's a conventional wisdom. And how should we really be looking at things? So when I say that, I have a very small view of, what happens based on our portfolio and the people that I talk to, but how things, and I think I discussed this on a previous episode with somebody where you were seeing these rent hikes in 20, early 20, uh, throughout 2021 and early 2022. And when rents were really high in the summer of 2022, right before they started to drop, typically management companies are giving the renewals 120, 90 to 120 days before expire. So if when you're doing your expiration, your your renewals for the fall winter, and you're using rents in the middle of the summer when it was at its peak, so it's not a great comparison. And I and I felt that this would happen like people were less concerned about retention last year because or six months ago because it's hey if they leave we're gonna replace it with somebody so much higher. But as you alluded to, people are 
if you're failing to look at how long it takes to re-rent it and what the turn costs and all these other numbers that go into it, it's not an even trade. And I think now there's a lot of people who are kind of like, oh no, what did we do? So that, so for me, I felt, and we discussed in an episode was that, that occupancies were going to drop at the yeah. end of 2022. And, and I, th- I think they're still fairly down. We're starting to see rents and, and things pick up a little bit. Do you feel that it was primarily driven by this, by renewals and people being aggressive on that or are there other factors? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a big fan of balance. And I think, you know, I, I tend to be of the view that, you know, you have people who are too concerned about the rent roll value and therefore take the lowest occupancy possible, uh, which I think is more, you know, more, more folktale than anything. But but on the flip side, you have people who are so concerned about occupancy that you don't really think about price. And I think that balance is always really important there. And, uh, you know, and we're shifting into a market where, you know, occupancy is harder to come by. And so in that market where it's harder to backfill units, you really have to be focused on on occupancy. Now, I will tell you, though, I think what's interesting about this last year, and as you mentioned, things slowed down the summer, you know, it really wasn't, at least we saw it in the national data, obviously it can differ in individual locations, uh, but at least in most markets as well, is that it really wasn't about the retention story. Um, and it and because what happened is that even though re- renewal notices were still very uh, large of an increase. Um, those when renters shopped around, they saw that they were still getting a discount relative to moving elsewhere. And so, you know, you may get an eight percent renewal, and you get some sticker shock. Then you look around, you say, "Hey, you know, I'm actually ten percent below market. I'm getting actually a, a really good deal, even if it doesn't feel like it." And um, I think uh, I think what's happening now, though, is we've reached a pivot where that gap between the existing rent and the and the the, the new lease rent, uh, meaning like you're, when you get a renewal offer, like you're not seeing those huge you, those huge gaps anymore. And so um, and so uh, new lease rents obviously come down, and um, you know four months of, of rent cuts to end out the year, and then we had a flat January nationally. So um, you know so that's. It's it, it makes it really important to price renewals appropriately. I mean, the last thing you want to do is send somebody out a big renewal rent increase when they could go look around and now they may actually see, you know, they could get a better deal by moving. And so, you know, that's when you really want to be careful. And I think, um, like I said, I think we've reached a real pivot point in the market. Um, last year it was more about a lack of new lease demand. This year, I think we're going to have more issues with retention because there's more supply available. And the supply available is due to the lower occupancy. Right, right. You have lower occupancy because of a lack of leasing momentum last year. So, you know, again, last year was really weird because you had very high retention rates, um, but you had lowering occupancy. And the reason was kind of nuanced. We hadn't really seen something like this before. It really had to do with the fact that, again, people renewing their leases still had a discount to renew. And so they were because they didn't have anywhere else to go because people wanted to stay put. It was, you know, uncertain times, low consumer confidence, human nature is to stay put. But that works on the other side as well. We saw a huge drop off in leasing traffic, front door leasing traffic, beginning in May or June last year, all the way through the end of the year, when people just, you know, were frozen in place. They didn't, they weren't shopping around. And so there was a lack of new lease demand. And so you always have some turnover in apartments, even if it was low last year, you know, people get married or they couple up, uh, you know, they go buy a house, you know, the numbers were down I and mean, homeownership rates still went up last year. Maybe they go into single family rental. So there's always going to be some natural turnover in an apartment. It's always going to be higher in that demographic versus a uh, single family demographic because it's a younger cohort. 
But uh, what was unusual last year, we didn't backfill that normal vacancy. Uh, so vacancy did go up. So there's more supply that way. Plus, we're building a lot of apartments. And so renters have a lot more options than they did these last couple of years. So I don't want to get into any political topics. I'm just, just curiously asking you to understand. There's a lot of conversation about affordability and supplying housing now we were yeah. just saying that there is a lot of supply is it that there's a lot of supply it's just not priced it's not affordable for a good part of the market and therefore we need more affordable options well i'm a fan of all of the above i mean bear in mind it was just a year ago i mean literally a year ago when vacancy was at the lowest levels on record and rent growth was peaking and people were signing leases with you know low 20 percent of income on rent we have you know actual data to show that um, and so, you know, at the same time, though, we had a shortage of anywhere from four to seven million units of housing. Um, and, uh, and a lot of that is, is rental housing. And so, um, and so people have to remember that, you know, demand is cyclical, but supply is structural. And so, you know, demand is going to move around based on things that are happening in the economy and other, and, you know, consumer confidence and inflation job growth, um, you know, demographic trends, all of those things could can shape demand in the short term. But supply is there for the long term. And um, and so it's really important to know, it's like just because vacancy is increasing does not mean there's an oversupply factor at place. It doesn't mean that, you know, and also the flip, it all, and conversely with that, it, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden as rents dropped off in the last six months that rents became less affordable. You know, it's interesting is like rents have cooled off as, as occupancy has cooled off, yet it's not stimulated more demand quite yet and so um well so so again the, the, there's a couple of things going on number one we just need more housing but number two there's a different challenge you know i mentioned last year low vacancy yet people are paying um peak increases and driving vacancy the lowest levels on record at the same time you have you know millions of households are unable to find um quality affordable housing out there and unfortunately you know these are mostly households that weren't able to afford market rate housing even prior to the pandemic and prior to the big rent increases we saw in 2021 and so they really need to be looking at these problems separately where there is a severe shortage of affordable housing and unfortunately construction economics you know they they they, they don't work it, it things are too expensive land labor construction materials uh regulatory fees and nobody wants to adjust their fees to you just because you're building affordable housing. Um, and so that's, it's expensive. And so the only way to build it is obviously with uh, public support to do so. And this is me just playing economist for a moment where we're, and in Maryland, we're seeing this a lot. There's certain parts of, you know, the 95 corridor where there's a lot of warehouse industrial being built. There's a lot of Amazon warehouses and they're pulling people They're They're bringing all these jobs but all those people, they're not living options nearby. So you have these people who are coming in, they're now traveling 30 minutes, 30 miles, 30 minutes, whatever it might be. Um, so the, 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 the growth of the industrial and the warehouse space is providing more jobs, but it's, it's not necessarily a better quality of life because they're, they're still commuting far because there's not a lot of options for affordability in terms of renting. So if there would be this collaboration, um, of of the public sector providing affordable housing for these industrial jobs, these blue collar jobs that are growing in certain markets, and the city should, the municipalities should benefit from that because you have those people living there. You're going to have a lot more benefit than if they're just traveling in to work and traveling out. What are your thoughts of that? Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you, in a more extreme scenario, uh, there was a big 
problem in some of the ski resort towns in Colorado the last couple of years where you had uh, ski resorts that couldn't get staff because they had nowhere to live. They could afford to live in. And some of them even tried to build, you know, their own housing on property. And, you know, the locals would block it. And so there is a real issue here where, um, you know, we, you know, nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. Um, and that, that is a huge impediment to, uh, affordable housing all across the country. And, uh, for, you know, what the example like you shared as well. And so number one, people don't want it. And number two, you know, cities and states have been unwilling to fund it. And, um, it, you know, and again, the reality is that even if you had no rent increases these last couple of years, you'd still have millions of Americans unable to afford to rent or buy a home. And uh, again, so you can only really solve that problem by building truly affordable housing. Now, in my experience, the performance of a property, so you have market conditions, but a very, uh, you know, a, a key part to that is is the team and having a full staff and having a good culture and having the right team and, and, and not having a lot of turnover on a uh, on the staffing side. So when you look, you look at numbers, how would you, it would be interesting if you're able to do this, but you, if you look at certain trends and then you see certain geographic areas where there have been less staffing issues or pay is different, or how do you, how do you layer that in? Like when you're just, if you're just looking at purely numbers and the performance of properties, okay, so you have those numbers, how would you layer in or how would you consider if the staffing or the people play a factor in the performance? Yeah, no, I mean, staffing is really important. I think it's easy to take people for granted, you know, when the labor market is, is, uh, is in favor of employers. And what we've seen these last couple of years is that it's really, really hard to hire good people, especially on site, your leasing teams, your maintenance teams. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, just talking to different operators all across the country, everyone's very focused on retaining both their residents, but also their, their staff. And, um, you know, the, the staff is the front lines and they're the ones that are talking to prospects. They're the ones that are talking to residents. They're the ones that can provide either a good experience or a bad experience for your prospects and for your residents. And so, um, you know, yeah, I think that, uh, that, that, that it's really important to make sure you're taking care of your own people and so that they're incentivized to take care of your customers. But is there, a, from an economic standpoint or from your standpoint, is there a way for you to detect which markets are having yeah. a struggle with that and that's impacting the overall economics of the market? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the challenges are all over the country, but I will tell you in terms of just seeing the benefit from it, you know, one things that we, we did a study a year or two ago on reputation of properties. So we looked at aura scores, online reputation assessment scores. And, um, and, and, you know, the aura score is very much driven by your team and their ability to deliver a good experience to customers. And what we found in the study was that there was a strong relationship between, um, uh, revenue performance and reputation. So if you improve your reputation, um, you're also likely to see revenue outperformance associated with that. I think the reputation is re- reflecting on the service that's happening. Yes. And, and, and that in your, in your service is going to impact your retention and retention is a big driver for, for re- revenue. Yeah. Well, yeah, but re- revenue, but also just, um, but also to like good, like good news spreads. Like if, if I'm living in one of your communities and it's been awesome, your team is great. I'm telling my friends, Hey, come live over here too. That's, that's more revenue too. Your occupancy could be higher. Um, and, um, 
Um, it's on the new lease side too, I should say. Yeah. So I, I want to, your take, this is what I'm kind of seeing and uh, I don't know, projecting. I'm not, I'm not a finance guy. I don't know all the numbers in terms of floating debt and things like that, but it seemed there was a lot of action in terms of transactions in the last, uh, in throughout 21 and the first half of 22. And it seems that a lot of people potentially overpaid and they also bought properties with the expectation that they're going to be able to continue to grow rents at a record high pace. And it seems that a lot of those properties that from what I could see are struggling because they're chasing these higher rents and these higher valuations. And there's just not that the occupancy is not there and they're they're just not able to accomplish what they were hoping to. And then when you have these adjustable rates and you have things kicking in, it's, it's going to cause a lot of fire sales. And I, I know of a lot of folks who are, are on the side waiting to to buy these properties. Yeah. If one, what are your thoughts of that happening? And two, if that does play out, what will that do to the market over time? Yeah, this is, this is the hot topic right now. I mean, one thing I would say is that while well, the scenario you described is is very true, it only describes a small part of the market. Um, you know, a lot of buyers are long term buyers, um, and you know, most of them do not write crazy rent growth numbers. But where you do see some issues are those that are, you know, short term value add players, meaning like, you know, they're buying a prop. They're basically flippers. You know, they're buying a property, the intent of doing renovations, raising the rent and then selling it at a higher value. That has become much more difficult right now. Uh, first of all, the CapEx costs are through the roof. At the same time, is it's harder to raise the rent even with a, a renovation and being able to do it in a short-term time frame when all of a sudden the cost of debt is much higher. And, that, and that's really the main issue is it's the, when you do refinance um, you're, you're, and also for the buyer coming as well, like they're having to assume a ho- the higher cost of debt, the higher rate. And, uh, and that really, I mean, a, an increase of, of a full percentage point really changes the math. Um, and so uh, there's going to be, uh, I wouldn't call it widespread, but I think there's, there's good, definitely going to be pockets of distress. Um, um, and I think in what you're, what you describe though is what we're hearing as well. And, you know, the proof's always in the pudding. So we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, everyone around the industry continues to believe there's a lot of capital that wants to invest in multifamily. And a lot of it's, you know, waiting for some of that distress to emerge, uh, cap rates to increase. So some of these opportunities get a little more attractive for the buyer. So, you know, again, we'll see how it plays out, but um, ultimately, I don't think there'll be a major disruption in the market. But there's going to be just because again, there's so much capital willing to, wanting to jump in at the right price. Uh, but certainly, we're going to see uh, you know certain investors are are um, you know are are, are going to end up in, in, in having to sell at prices they did not plan to. Well, well okay. What I'm thinking, though, if that does play out, then when you have these buyers that come in, that that could create a little bit of disruption for the market because they're going to be buying these properties that their occupancy is low and they might lower the rents there in order to fill up. Now, obviously, this is smaller pockets. This is the, you know, is not the norm everywhere. It's not going to have a huge disruption on the market, but in markets where there's properties like this and you have buyers coming in, and they're lowering rents in order to fill up the property, how that will have an overall impact in those sub-markets. Well, the, the issue is not so much the fundamental side. Like what's interesting is like the distress that you're seeing, there's always exceptions to this, but I mean, for the most part, it's not going to be that occupancy has all of a sudden gotten really low. The issue is going to be that they were expecting to be able to 
do, you know, refinance and do certain things that are no longer penciling out, uh, because the, 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 the cost of debt has now gone up, uh, so significantly. Um, and they're going to have to either raise additional capital or, um, or sell, uh, or bring in preferred equity or mes debt or something else. Uh, in order to make the deal work. And so it's really the debt side causing the distress, not so much uh, the fundamental side, unless you just underwrote, you know, crazy expectations on rent growth, which, you know, does it happen? Sure. But I don't think that's a, a mainstream problem. Susie, so it's not driven by inflated performance. It's driven by the f- the debt side. It's an, it's 90% is driven by the debt side. Yeah. The only time it's driven by performance, again, I, I, I shouldn't say only like man, there's always exceptions. The main issue with Proforma is going to be for the short-term value-add buyer. Like They're the ones that were expecting to see uh, a much higher increase, but they were associating it with a value-add that may no longer pencil out. But you know, for the most part, no one was buying properties assuming 10% rent growth for five years. Like That's just crazy, and uh, no lender would approve that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we before we wrap up here, I, I being a carries person, like to look at our portfolio and try to figure out like where we should be tweaking things and how we could impact things, uh, yeah. you know, the returns for the company and for our investors. And so one of the things that I came up with and I looked at the the property that performed the highest for us, the best in 2022 had a certain, they maintained occupancy above 96%. They had zero months that they finished under 95%. Their retention was great. Their turnover was around 32%. And so I kind of came up with my own KPIs. Like if we maintain a certain occupancy and you keep reten- uh, turnover low, you know, between 30 and 32%, you're going to outperform others. So in ter- you have a, a lot of data and access to a lot of data. Do you see any, like when you look at the properties that are performing the best that have certain common denominators? Because I think there's a, there's like this myth, and I think it comes from the broker selling properties is always like you got to be pushing rents, pushing rents, pushing rents, and it's interesting. It's really all about the revenue, and they get distracted by always pushing rents, and they sacrifice overall revenue growth. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I I mean again, I think it's you know being balanced, but um, it, you know, I, I also think it's going to depend on the cycle that you're in. Um, you know, is there a correlation nationally between higher, you, you know, retention equals higher revenue? You know, not always, but I think what we're going to see is this year it's going to be. Um, and also too, I'll say that you know, in Class B and C properties, it's more important too because your turn costs are a bigger percentage of your of your uh, of your revenue and your rent for the for the unit um and so i so i you know i I hate to use the old cop-out economist answer if it depends but it does depend but i will say though is that it's really important this year and uh you know especially this year i mean retention is always important but um i think that this is a year where you really want to target higher retention than normal uh, because those units are going to be harder to backfill um and particularly when you have good residents who are you know, contributing to your community, they're paying rent. Um, you know, they're they're embedded in the in the in, in the apartment community. They're selling your units to others who are coming in because they're proponents of it. Like those are people you want to keep. And um, and so I do think it's smart just to be really focused on retention right now and uh, preserving occupancy. I think that is is uh, is probably the most important operational strategy right now. So as we wrap up, I call them curious questions. What I'm curious, you know, about you, what 
what do you do? Like, where do you get your information? What do you do to consume content? How do you like to consume it? I consume all kinds of content. I like to read. I, uh, you know, I set a bunch of Google news alerts on topics that are of interest to me. You know, a lot of it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it can be, you know, just, just rental housing topics in general. Um, you know, I look at what's, you know, trending around evictions and landlords and rents and just housing policy topics. Um, and just reading as much as I can, trying to, you know, compare that to what we see in our data. And of course, you know, I think, uh, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter have a lot of, you know, kind of good color from people as well. And, uh, and so I like to, you know, glean from that. And of course, you know, kind of check that with individual conversations. I send, you know, notes and, you know, hop on calls and whatnot. Like, you know, I would tell people all the time is, you know, I'm in a position where I get lots and lots and lots of data. But uh, it's nothing like talking to people who are actually on the ground, living it out. And so, you know, I have a lot of respect and and, uh, and, and curiosity for the people who actually are living this out on the ground. And I always like to get, uh, you know, color and intel from 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 those with that point of view. Do you have like a group that you go to for that? Uh, no, it depends that I, yeah, I mean, it depends on the topic. Yeah, I, I um you know, probably like most people, it's it's a it's kind of an evolving group of people who all ping on different topics or reach out to me or you see them at conferences. And, hey, you're asking what do you what are you seeing? What are you seeing? So, um, you know, and then there's just the different persona as well. You know, how brokers are thinking about things versus um, owners, large owners versus small owners, the third party property managers versus owner operators. Different thoughts by region of the country as well. Um, but you know, what's really interesting is that. Well, your themes might change a little bit, you know, sentiment and overall kind of points of view are really similar across the spectrum. And um, and so, you know, if you if you're talking to people and you're reading material, looking at data, you know, you're you're you're, you're not going to be arriving at vastly different conclusions from somebody else doing the same thing. Yeah, well, Jay, I, I could go on for a while, but we try to keep this on the shorter side. I really enjoyed. Maybe we'll have you back for another episode. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. 